thank you for having me here. It's a privilege to be here. Chad and I are uh, uh, swapping pulpits for a, a couple of weeks, uh, and the reason we do that, if he hadn't already told you, is it, it just there's so many administrative things for solo pastors like he and myself to to have to do that it helps us to just take a sermon that we've preached at our congregation and preach it somewhere else so that we don't have to write several sermons. And uh, so, uh, but it is a privilege to, to speak to you. So when I was here two weeks ago, we looked at the first half of Psalm 139. And so today we'll look at the second half. So I'm going to read uh, verses 13 to 24 in its entirety. And then we'll go down verse by verse. So hear the word of the Lord. Psalm 139, verses 13 through 24. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when, as of yet, there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Let me pray. O Lord our God, I pray that you would open the ears of the deaf and the eyes of the blind. I pray that you would speak to our hearts And I pray that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see, and to know you, and to know, indeed, how intricately you know us. To the praise of your glorious grace. Amen. So, two weeks ago, as I said, I'm going to just put this here, we covered the first 12 verses of Psalm 139. And I emphasize that those verses really focus upon how God knows us far better than we could even know ourselves. And in that, he allows himself to be known by us. And so when it comes to the matter of our knowing God, the scriptures instruct us to know God by knowing the character of God and the heart of God. And in that vein, those first 12 verses of Psalm 139 teach us how intimately acquainted God is with us. Then, as we come to the verses that we've read here, beginning in verses 13 through 16, that theme continues 
of God's being acquainted with us at every moment of our lives. But now the focus shifts to how intricately acquainted God is with us, even to the creation, the beginning of our very existence, with the emphasis being upon God's acquaintance with us as our creator. And so if we consider just verses 13 through 16, the psalmist writes, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. So there's a connection between the wonder of how intricately we are made and the fact that human beings as creatures of God bear the very image of God, which is something that cannot be said of any other aspect of creation. Not an animal, not a fish, not a bird, not a flower, not a mountain range, not a glorious sunset. According to the creation story of Genesis 1, human beings are set apart from any other aspect of creation in that we are the only creatures that are made in the image of God. And the problem is that we have a great aversion as human beings to actually believing that we are made in the image of God. For many years, our church has received, uh, on an annual basis, a box of calendars, printed calendars, uh, that are produced by a local business. It's advertising. We didn't ask for these. They just show up. And these calendars feature inspiring pictures of outdoor scenes, maybe a mountain range, maybe a sunset. And the scenes, of course, are going to correspond to the season of the year. So for the month of June, there might be a beautiful picture of a seaside setting. For the month of December, there might be the picture of a snow-covered forest. But with every photograph, there's also uh, a Bible verse printed on that picture. And that Bible verse usually has absolutely no connection to the photograph upon which it's featured. Not only that, but very rarely, if ever, do any of these photographs within this calendar ever feature a human being. Which is very odd, because according to the Scriptures, a human being conveys within themselves far more about God than the most majestic mountain range or sunset ever could. Now that's not to say that any of us possess divinity, but because we bear the image of God, you and I are created to 
represent God and to reveal something about God in a way that no scenic vista, no other aspect of creation ever could do. But of course, there's a reason why human beings are not typically featured as points of inspiration on a calendar. Although we bear the image of God, we have a sinful nature. And so we also possess a depravity within ourselves that can present the very opposite of the image of God. And so even as we possess uh, the image of God, we overlook the dignity of our humanity, and it's also easy to overlook our depravity as well. Um, I think back to when I was 13 years old, and myself and my eight-year-old brother and my parents were watching TV one night. I remember we were watching PBS, and there was a documentary that came on, and it was about the Holocaust, the Nazi Germany's efforts to basically exterminate uh, the Jews and other people as well. And it was pretty graphic. And I remember my parents saying to us as this was beginning, I don't think they knew this was coming on, but when they saw it, they said to us, don't leave. You have to see this. You need to watch this. You need to know this. And I look back, I'm kind of surprised that they would say that to their children who were 8 and 13 years old at the time. Um, but they did, and I am remembering it here many decades later. And it really prompted for me an interest in that subject. Uh, I, I'm uh, looking back, thinking, putting myself in that position as a 13-year-old watching that documentary. I'm kind of astonished now, looking back, to say that I've had the opportunity since then to go to every death camp in Poland to study and to tour and to learn about uh, extensively these places. Uh, I've read a fair amount as well. And for all that I've had the opportunity to see and learn, the most surprising thing maybe came from a book that I read just at my own dining room table. It was a book written by a man named Primo Levi, who was an Italian Jew who was sent to Auschwitz as a teenager. And what surprised me in his story was not the evil of the Germans running the camp, but rather the evil on the part of the other concentration camp prisoners themselves. That, did not, that was not the narrative I was expecting. But he spoke often of the struggle that, that prisoners had just in keeping an eye on their few belongings, either a bowl or a piece of clothing or an eating utensil, because any lapse of alertness could allow for someone's few possessions in that setting to be stolen, which could then be used by the thieving prisoner as bartering, barter for more food or clothing. And so this was the system that the Germans had created 
where each of the prisoners were pitted against each other in a battle for survival. And so upon arriving in Auschwitz, Primo Levi lost any interest in personal hygiene. And he was very fortunate to have a wise older prisoner notice what he was doing. And he took him aside and he said, you have to understand that this camp is a machine that the Germans have designed to reduce us to beasts. We must not let ourselves become beasts. We must certainly wash our faces without soap in dirty water, if for nothing else than to remain alive, if for nothing else than that we make a choice that we be not begin to die. Well, shortly after I read Levy's book, I saw an interview by uh, journalist Bill Moyers with another Auschwitz survivor, uh, Ellie Wiesel. And almost from the start, Wiesel's perspective echoed that of Primo Levi, and he said that he was asked if when he arrived in Auschwitz, if he felt hated by the Germans. And he said, not, not, no, not from the Germans so much, because they didn't hate you because you hate human beings, and they didn't see us as human. And so he said he, he felt hated by the other prisoners, the, other, the anti-Semites in the camp. But what Primo Levi and Elie Wiesel both were hitting upon was this core component within the Holocaust that the German captors saw nothing of the image of God in their Jewish victims. They saw no mark of divine dignity that their subjects possessed as being made in the image of God, and they had created this environment within that concentration camp that sought to inculcate that thinking into the minds and hearts of their captives as well. And so as we consider David's emphasis upon how wonderfully we are made by, by our Creator, there's also this elephant in the room, so to speak. Um, I'll speak very carefully about this, but the, the subject of abortion is obviously a very polarizing issue in our culture today. If you're uh, opposed to abortion, you're likely already familiar with Psalm 139. If you're in favor of abortion, or maybe you're on the fence about that, uh, these verses in Psalm 139 might strike a nerve or at least some sense of discomfort. But there's a third group of folks that might read these verses, and their minds might go in a direction that is virtually unrelatable to anybody else. And I'm speaking of those who have actually had an abortion. I had a conversation uh, recently with a man who told me that long before uh, he and his wife had ever met, uh, the woman that he would marry had had three abortions. And it was this man's observation that the choice by a woman to get an abortion doesn't only affect the woman and her unborn child. For this man's wife, after uh, she had three abortions, she later gave birth to three children who are now adults. And according to this man, her husband, uh, what this woman had gone through and the decision that she had made prior to having children profoundly affected her relationship with her children, whom she did bear. And as the man explains it, this woman has repeatedly carried out a desperate uh, 
cycle of trying through her relationships with her children and her grandchildren to somehow try to gain forgiveness for something that she did four decades ago. And I'm speaking about a marriage between two Christians, a Christian household where there is a there seems to be a clear understanding of grace and mercy, of, of the grace and mercy of God, and yet for this woman, the memory of her past and, and her actions is like a persistent enemy that she just can't seem to shake. Uh, it's very easy for us to see abortion as a clearly defined matter, and people on both sides of the argument with differing worldviews certainly do see this subject as a clearly defined matter and neither, self, neither side can seem to understand how the other side can see it differently. But if we as Christians are going to be life-giving in the world in which we live, we're going to have to be people of mercy and grace and blessing, especially to those who think differently from us, especially to those who are anticipating condemnation from us. Even if you don't agree with somebody, you can absolutely love and honor people and treat them as being wonderfully made in the image of God. So as much as it depends on us, we have to be careful not to let our disagreements be defined by self-righteousness or a condemning spirit. So from a, a biblical perspective, what causes abortion to stop making sense is that in order to approve of it, we actually have to think less of ourselves and of our offspring. And Psalm 139 says the opposite is true, that because we are created in the, in the image of God, because we are wonderfully made, every human being is a person of great worth and dignity in the eyes of God and deserves to be treated as such. But possessing that value and that dignity also brings a responsibility to treat others as the same. And as recipients of the grace and mercy of God through Jesus we need to be life-giving people to others who have yet to receive that life, who don't know that life, but it is that eternal, that message of hope of the gospel, that eternal life is extended to them, and we are God's conduit for that. Uh, and so we come to verse 17, where David writes, How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. Now, that's a fascinating contemplation on David's part because when we think about the thoughts of God, you might think of Isaiah 55 at verses 8 and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declare the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Now, we read that. And we might think that, well, we just can't know the thoughts of God. And in one sense, that's true, because God is God and we are not. But in another sense, David is encouraging us as finite creatures to contemplate upon the thoughts of a God who is not finite. By the way, the Apostle Paul says something similar to the Corinthian church. For who has understood the mind of the Lord as to instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. So we are encouraged to know the mind of God, even if our minds are not made to comprehend everything about God. 
we are encouraged in the scriptures to be concerned with the things that concern the very heart of God, which should seem sensible because we as human beings, unlike any other creatures, are made in the image of God. So let me introduce you to my dog, Hondo. Uh, Hondo lived a long life. He died last year. But he was an amazingly relational dog. I never thought I would be as close to a dog as my wife and I were to Hondo. But for all the time that we spent together, I found myself often wondering, what was on the, what's on the mind of Hondo? What's he thinking? If we're on a walk and we come across droppings from a deer, I cannot comprehend why Hondo loved to roll around in deer poop. What's he thinking? And whenever that happened, Hondo probably could not comprehend why he would then quickly be taken to the utility sink in the basement and given a bath. He's probably looking at me going, what's he thinking? And, and so I would often contemplate the difference between this dog whom I love so much but who was not made in the image of God and, and myself who was made in the image of God who could know God. And, and yet I, I, I learned God taught me so much about himself through my relationship with this dog. I've used so many sermon illustrations at my own church that someone has suggested I compile them in a book called The Gospel According to Hondo. Um, there are differences between a human being and God, and yet despite what we cannot fully comprehend, because we as human beings bear within ourselves uh, the image of God, we are created to actually know God. We are created to actually be in a relationship with God. And speaking of thoughts that we struggle to comprehend, we come to verse 19, which provides an uncomfortable point of transition in this psalm. In the first 18 verses of Psalm 139, we have read of God being intimately, intricately, and sovereignly involved in our lives and in the order of our very being. And now the next four verses take what seems to be an unexpected turn and we need to understand them in their proper context. So, verse 19, David writes, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Now, we have to read these verses in the context of the previous 18 verses in Psalm 139. So verses 19 through 22 are speaking to a moral order that exists as part as a part of the dominion of the Creator and His creation. But here's where we have to take note of the specific context for David, who is writing this song. When David wrote this song, he's the king of Israel. And during David's life, Israel was essentially a theocracy. And for that specific covenant nation, 
In that specific time in the history of Israel, David was charged and anointed by God to shepherd the people of Israel and lead them in obeying God's commands. And so if wickedness is present, either from within David's own administration or from within his nation, or if a neighboring enemy was a threat to Israel's national security, then David is charged by God to protect and defend his people, both from within and from without. So that means that David had to rule with a zeal for God's commands and with a zeal for guarding the welfare of God's covenant people, Israel. So he's writing with that concern, and he's writing it for all to see. Okay, so what do we do with these verses? Well, first let's talk about what we are not to do with these verses. We're not to use these verses as a license for hatred or revenge. We do not live in a theocracy, and we are not kings. If you are a Christian, your king is Jesus, and he has commanded us to love our enemies and to bless those who curse us and to pray for those who mistreat us. Think about David himself. Before he became king, David had a personal enemy in his predecessor, King Saul, who wanted to kill David. And yet David even came upon the opportunity to kill Saul. And instead, David had mercy upon Saul and spared his life. In understanding the call from God's law to love his neighbor as himself, and to, and to understand God's sovereign hand upon Saul as king, David was demonstrating great faith, great wisdom, and self-restraint. Secondly, we need to recognize that if the king of a theocratic Israel has such a hatred for sin, the sin that can destroy that king's own people, how much more must a holy and just God hate the sin that has corrupted the world and the people whom he has so intricately created. Now, this can be very confusing and problematic for us because we tend to have a less than accurate view of sin. This is where we get back to God's thoughts not necessarily being our thoughts. We have a less than accurate view of the mercy of God as well. So think about what Jesus said when he says, in Luke 7, he who is forgiven little loves little. Now, I don't think that Jesus was suggesting there that there were some who had little to be forgiven. What he was saying is that if we have little love and gratitude towards God, it's because we don't recognize how much we ourselves need him and how much we have ourselves been forgiven. You can't fully appreciate the mercy of God without appreciating God's hatred of sin. We have to understand what that mercy cost God. What the gospel of Christ says is that God would love you so much that he would give up his own son to pay the punishment that we deserved. In other words, God didn't waive the punishment that we deserved. He didn't say, oh, don't worry about it. If he had waived that punishment... God would not have been just. Instead, God took it upon himself by giving up his only begotten son to take 
our punishment upon himself. Uh, some of my ancestors were, um, lo- ancestors long since deceased, were skilled in the chemical art of zimurgy, and they were so good at this practice of zimurgy that they made a living off of it, uh, which is a fancy way of saying that they earn their living in the Blue Ridge Mountains making moonshine. And one such relative was a man who I never met. He died before I was born, I think. His name was Uncle Vol. And he set up his liquor still at the top of a steep rock face on the side of a mountain. And he didn't realize it one day, but he had been followed by a government revenue agent. And when Uncle Vol realized that he had been discovered, he decided that he only had one option. He was going over that rock cliff, and off he jumped, and he hoped for the best. He stopped himself by grabbing onto a large thorn bush. It ripped him up pretty good. Uh, He had no skin left on his hands or his feet. He didn't wear shoes, so he's messed up pretty good, and given the way, the shape that he was in, there's no way he was going to be able to get away from this revenue agent, but instead, the revenue agent just stood up there and watched him get away and didn't pursue him. And so, sometime later, another family member of mine ran into the revenue agent in town. You can see that my ancestors were quite acquainted with the revenue agent, and he said, I've got to ask you something. Uh, you could have easily caught Uncle Ball. Why did you let him go? And the revenue agent said, I'm not going to arrest a man who would jump off a rock cliff just so he could continue to be able to feed his family. Now, that might sound like a picture of the mercy of God. And that God would not hold our sins against us, even though he could have. That's not a biblical view of the mercy of God. You see, again, we can't fully appreciate the mercy of God unless we fully appreciate God's hatred of sin. We have to understand what that mercy cost God. God is not like that revenue agent in that he did not look at you or me and say, well, that person is a sinner but they're trying hard, and I want to have compassion on them and forgive them, so I'm just going to cut them a break and not hold their sin against them. That is not what the gospel of Jesus says. What the gospel of Christ says is that God would love us so much that he would give up his own son to pay the punishment that we deserve. God didn't waive the punishment. If he did that, he would not have been just. God took, upon him, took it upon himself to give up his one and only begotten son. So if we minimize our view of sin and, if we, and God's hatred for sin, then we also end up minimizing the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf. Now, I've emphasized Psalm 139 as a psalm that helps us to know God. But when we think about God's hatred of sin... This psalm is also helping us to know the heart of God. Why does God hate sin? 
Well, the primary reason God hates sin is because of what it does to, to the human beings whom he has made in his own image, whom he has intricately and intimately and lovingly created. Please don't miss seeing the heart of God and understanding how committed God is to us. Please don't let the knowledge of God's hatred of sin cause you to shy away from him and doubt his love for you. It actually should increase your understanding of God's love for you. Our response, instead of shying away, should be just the opposite. God's hatred of sin should give you and me great hope. Even as King David was called by God to protect and defend the people of God under his reign, so you and I have an everlasting king in the Lord Jesus, a king who hates sin and has done everything necessary to deliver his people from the tyranny of sin. And what, so what that should mean for us is what it meant for David, that we can approach God with humility and honesty and confidence, which brings us to the last two verses that David approaches, which is really the only request in the entire psalm. Verses 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. These are two of my favorite verses in all of Scripture because of how they encourage us to approach God. Although we are sinners, although there may be offensive ways in us that we cannot see, Nonetheless, we are encouraged in this request to approach God with confidence because we're not fearing a judgment that leads to shame and punishment because Jesus has taken all of that away once and for all upon himself. We're approaching a God who already knows us intimately, a God who already knows us intricately, and he's made us in his, his image. So we're approaching a God who desires to transform our hearts so that we might then increasingly reflect his image, the very image of God that we bear, whether we realize it or not. Think about that. Let me pray. Lord, as we consider uh, your work in our lives, we pray that you would Help us to know your heart. Help us to know your hand upon us. Help us to know the glorious truth of the gospel and, and the lengths to which you have gone to reconcile us to yourself through our Lord and Savior Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.